Nice buns, soft, fluffy, and ultra low net carbs. Discover Hero Bread, the delicious ultra low net carb bread with incredible taste and texture. Hero Bread has zero grams of sugar and is under 100 calories per serving. Plus, high in fiber with 5 to 10 grams of protein per serving. Order from Hero.co now and get 10% off your first purchase with promo code AH10. That's 10% off with code AH10. H-E-R-O C-O. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome, everybody, to a Baseball America podcast. I'm John Manuel. I'm joined from Arizona by J.J. Cooper. I'm joined from Massachusetts by Ben Badler. A World Baseball Classic uh, power podcast. Uh, those two guys have already covered WBC games. I'm on my way to cover uh, the semifinals and finals in San Francisco on Friday. So uh, we're not all WBC all the time, but it, it's felt that way for a couple of weeks for the three of us. And uh, we're going to talk a lot about uh, what Ben saw in Japan with Team Japan and obviously Cuba. Uh, JJ's observations from Phoenix with the U.S., the brawl, all that went on down there. But let's start off, guys, with the, the game that's on tap tomorrow as we record this. It's the Pool 2, really the showdown. And for the first time in three World Baseball Classics, we'll get to see the United States against the Dominican Republic. And then I'll start with you. I mean, the Dominican doesn't necessarily have all of its stars because they don't have Johnny Cueto and probably a couple outfielders you would take. Your optimal Dominican team would not have Ricardo Nanita in the outfield corner. Um but this is still a, a devastating Dominican lineup, and they've played very well. They're the only undefeated team in the WBC. Uh, what's your take on this game, uh, and what's your take on, on the way the Dominican team has played to this point? Yeah, I mean, I think the I, I would think the the U.S. would probably be the favorite to win not just this game, but probably the whole tournament. Uh, between you know, not just you know the lineup. I think the Dominican Republic can match. Uh, they can match the U.S. on the lineup when you have. You know, Jose Reyes and Hanley Ramirez and Robinson Cano, uh, you know, Nelson Cruz, all these guys. That's a, that's a pretty powerful lineup. The problem is that there's, there's a state of Dominican starting pitching. You, you mentioned Johnny Cueto's not there. You know, if they had him, it, it might be a different story. But, uh, you know, that's just what scouts scouts talk about all the time. They, they go to the Dominican Republic and, and they're scouting guys. And it's, you know, a lot of guys who can – you know, throw really hard, but a lot of times the the field, a spin, a breaking ball isn't there, uh, and the pitchability isn't isn't there. It just doesn't seem to develop a lot of times. It actually makes Wandy Rodriguez, uh, you know, really stand out in in that regard, especially uh, being a left-handed guy. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it, you talk about guys who aren't there. I mean, even for for starting pitchers, they're going to throw Sam De, Samuel Deduno uh, out there. It's it's not like, you know, they have Volquez, but, I mean, who else would you, uh, you know, who else is missing? I mean, do you want Francisco Liriano out there or, or Ubaldo Jimenez or, you know, Yvonne uh, Nova or Irvin Santana? It's not like <laughs> it's not like there's a wide array of, you know, quality starting pitchers to choose from. It really is amazing, Ben, when you look at, and that's a story idea we're working on for the year. And, J.J., you and I talked about it in the podcast uh, this winter, I mean, the, the Dominican Republic and pitchability, they just don't go together. 
and uh, you know it's just not a it's not a strength of the Dominican team. That said, the bullpen is a strength of this Dominican team. It feels like if the Duno can give them three or four serviceable innings against the U.S. I mean, you picked the Dominican to win the whole tournament, J.J., and correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, you did it because their bullpen is so stacked. The, the bullpen and the lineup, and, and I do think the one thing that stands out with this game is, is that this is not a must-win game for the Dominican. And that's the key thing about of getting the, you know, the win in the first game is that they can lose this one. And really, in the grand scheme, as long as they beat Italy, it, I mean, not, not you know, well, they would lose, excuse me, they beat the winner of Italy-Puerto Rico, right. uh, which is playing, then – then they can advance. So, and then once you get to the, you know, it's still going to be a, an issue for them, really, kind of, you know, anywhere in this tournament. But, and it, but I do think that their lineup is good enough. And we've seen, really, the the one thing that Sam Duduno gives you at least a little bit of is, is some unfamiliarity for some of the guys. There is some advantage to that maybe too. But no, I, I think you got to like the U.S. chances in this game. And the 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 argument against putting uh, R.A. Dickey on the mound against Mexico kind of goes away in this one is in that you really don't worry that the Dominican Republic bats are, are kind of be slow bats that have trouble getting around on good fastball. That's not really an issue with a lot of those guys. That's, that's what I was going to ask you, J.J. I mean, you'd made that great point, I thought, in Phoenix that scouts were saying you know, Mexico, as a, as a collective, that that team was not a team of bat speed guys. It was a team where you know, guys like Karim Garcia, I don't know him, I don't respect him, you know, guys like that who are going to beat you with strength, not bat speed, not whippy bat speed. You, you would not say that, obviously, about, about the Dominican Republic team. And it really, I have to say, guys, uh, it's, you know, the, only, the things that, the Dominican, uh, that people are talking about with the Dominican team uh, nationally are you know, that they're 4-0 and the talent in their lineup, and then the exuberance. <laughs> the, uh, it's a different style. I mean, everyone keeps talking about it. I don't know, Ben, JJ, I'll start with you, Ben. I mean, do you have uh, uh, any issue with the way the Dominican plays the game? I mean, Robbie Cano kind of complaining about Nick Punto's hard slides. I mean, they, it's kind of like a college atmosphere, the way they celebrate home runs and runs. For me, I, I'll be honest with you, I love it. I love seeing Jose Reyes cheerlead and go nuts. I, I love seeing the passion of the Dominican players on display in the WBC. I really don't have a problem with it, but it seems like some other people do. Well, the real question is what angle is Fernando Rodney's hat going to be at by the end of the tournament? <laughs> Backwards. Backwards. Yeah. I don't know if that's uh, maybe – that's got to be some mechanical adjustment that the Rays mm-hmm. made to, uh, I don't know, maybe get them better balance or something. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't care. I like seeing them celebrate. It's fun. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's March. Exactly. <laughs> I like seeing them get into it. It's, it's a lot more entertaining than, uh, you know uh, – you know, some spring training game where the, the results really don't matter. Uh, you know, I, I like seeing them celebrate. If you, you know, maybe if you do that in, you know, May or something where you're going to face a team again, uh, you might have to <laughs> face some repercussions uh, down the line. But, you know, in this game, especially compared to, you know, the, the antics, the celebrations, it's, you know, I, I don't have an issue with that, especially compared to uh, what the Cuban team does, uh, you know, <laughs> those guys were, you know, they'd throw, it would be a two-strike pitch, and it would be not even a borderline pitch, you know, a pitch off the plate, and, and the catcher would, uh, you know, frame the ball, and then he, would, or he wouldn't even frame the ball. He would just start walking off the field, and the pitcher would start walking off the field. Oh, wait, that's a ball. All right, fine, we'll, we'll come back. I mean, that gets a little bit <laughs> tiresome and, and grating. But, yeah, I don't, I don't have an issue with what the Dominican celebrations were. 
I'm gonna I'm gonna use that yeah. as a jumping off point because I do want to talk to you a little bit about Team Cuba. Um, you know, the Dominican and the U.S. are obviously still alive in Pool Two. We've had Japan and the Netherlands, uh, to use the March parlance, punch their tickets for San Francisco out of Pool One. Um, obviously, a surprise. I think even though JJ, you and I talked in the prelims and, and before the tournament about my affectation for the Netherlands and <laughs> how how much I like that team. And I wouldn't be surprised if even if they won the whole thing. So I, I'm not totally surprised they're going to um, to San Francisco. I am surprised they beat the Cubans twice. I, I wasn't surprised that, they, that the way they did it, that they were kind of gritty and uh, not intimidated by Cuba because they had beaten them uh, before in other international tournaments. Uh, going back to 2000 in Sydney when Rickard Fernight came out of center field and got the save against the tremendous Cuban team uh, in the Olympics to, to the 2011 World Cup. Um, you know, but this... But, but I do think Cuba not advancing is a pretty big shock. Uh, what was your take, JJ, just of watching them from afar before Ben? Uh, you know, I want to, and if you have questions for Ben about Team Cuba, I'd love to, to hear your uh, what you want to know from Ben. But what, what were your, what were your impressions? Yeah. I was going to say because one thing I do want to ask Ben is is what did he think about Victor Mesa's managing style? Which it seems like I mean you want to talk about living and dying on every pitch in the uh, you know in March. It felt like with with him it was like if a if a pitcher threw a bad pitch, he knew he might be taken out of the game. I mean it wasn't a bad outing. It wasn't a bad at bat even. It was threw a bad pitch. Okay, well he could you know you might be gone. But I, I do think that what we saw uh, a lot of is is kind of what we talked about in the preview is. Pitching-wise, they're just not nearly as intimidating as they used to be. And I thought that actually the pitching was maybe a little bit better than maybe, you know, I, I we thought going in. But, you know, I would love to hear Ben. I mean, since he saw him first, you know, firsthand, it just seems like that the hitting, you know, was was still there. But pitching-wise, they 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 just they really miss some of the guys that they've lost to the U.S. And they also just haven't developed enough pitching lately. Yeah, they don't have – I mean, it's hard to replace Chapman. There's nobody in the world like Chapman, but they don't have even somebody like uh, an El Duque uh, or a Levon Hernandez, Jose Contreras, somebody like that to uh, carry the team. They're throwing out guys. And remember, these are the best <laughs> of the best guys in Cuba, and their best pitchers, you know, Vladimir Garcia, he was, you know, 92, 94 – uh, kind of, you know, a sweepy kind of slider, but it was effective. Um, you know, he, he has a good arm, although he did get hit around uh, somewhat. But uh, after that, I mean, you're seeing a lot of guys throwing 87, 89. They brought in the lefty Gonzalez for, you know, long relief. But he was, I mean, throwing, I think he threw 100% sliders. Yeah, it looked uh, like it. It was just, they just throwing junk baller after junk baller. Um it's just not – I mean, Gerardo – think how bad Gerardo Concepcion was this past year. He probably would have been on that team. He might have even gotten a start for them. I, I don't know. But, um, yeah, the pitching for Cuba, we, we knew going in that their strength was going to be the lineup. It's huge power. It was, it was a lot of fun watching uh, BP or, uh, you know, watching guys like Alfredo Despagne and Jose Abreu and, and Yosemite Tomas coming out and, and showing their power. But – um, yeah, the pitching just, uh, I think the pitching cost them uh, a lot. And I think that, you know, a lot of the overmanaging cost them, you know, not only is it grading to watch, uh, you know, the manager come out to the mound almost every single inning, if not multiple times per inning, uh, that really drags the game on and is just makes it unenjoyable, 
to watch this kind of unnecessary mound trips constantly and all these uh, pitching changes. But, uh, you know, all these, you know, we wrote about it uh, yesterday, all the bunts that <laughs> they were doing from guys, you know, bunting with two strikes, bunting with guys like Guriel who clearly don't really know how to bunt. Um, you know, if you want to teach them how to bunt, that's, uh, I guess, go ahead. But that's really isn't the opportunity <laughs> for that. Um, so I think they sort of manage themselves out of the game. Yeah, Ben, it really seemed like, and we talked about this off-air yesterday, so I'm making on-air now so it actually counts. But I really thought that uh, watching yesterday, that asking Uleski Gurriel to bunt in the seventh inning was the the worst move of the whole tournament because Gurriel was having a great game. He already had two doubles. He's, what, a two-time MVP in Serie Nacional. He's a veteran of that national team. And uh, he didn't get the button down. The inning went away, as so many others, as you detailed very well. The inning dissipated where you give the other team an out and you don't score. And uh, it seemed like all the momentum in the game after that point went to the Netherlands. Uh, you had the Simmons game tying home run on the eighth. You had Gurriel with a base running, I guess Mesa would say gaff. I would say safe base running when you have Frederick Cepeda and Jose Abreu coming to the plate. But you know, Mesa went berserk in the dugout um, when Gurriel didn't score from second on the single um, uh, by, by Fernandez. And then you had uh, you know Gurriel making the error in the ninth inning. It seemed like that failed bunt and the way his manager was on him for it did not help him perform. In fact, I think it hindered his performance, and he, he helped. I, mean, I think that guy's the goat. I mean, and I don't mean greatest of all time. I mean, he's wearing the he's wearing the goat horns for Cuba. And I wonder what the long-term ramifications will be for Uleski Gurriel on that team. I mean, it's not like they couldn't plug in Hector Oliveira at third base if they think he's not a flight risk <laughs> with Fernandez playing second. I mean, uh, and you said Gurriel had the – so that was my take on that game. You also said that you know Guriel and Abreu and so, several of the great Cuban players, and they are some great talents, um, had a little bit of funk in their swings. And kind of, there were some things that you noticed. Uh, so I wanted you maybe to talk a little bit about that, the kind of the swing of Guriel and the play of maybe if you wanted to break down Guriel, Abreu, you know, your kind of your take and some of the, the preliminary talks you had with some scouts, and then kind of Tomas, you know, Zvani Tomas, who seems like he's kind of the breakout talent, maybe the guy that was a good Cuban player that maybe got a little bit more exposure and became a bigger name after this tournament. Yeah, well, you know, we, we just talked about the pitching in Cuba, and I think it's had an effect. It has an effect on the hitters where it, it leads to some bad habits from the hitters. Yeah, you can see guys like Gurriel and uh, Despagne, those guys, especially Despagne, is just unbelievable bat speed, but, you know, I don't think you really need a, a sharp scouting eye to notice that he's got uh, – He's got a lot of things in his swing that <laughs> you probably wouldn't want to teach. I mean, there's uh, there's length there. There's like a, a little bit of a hitch. There's, it gets, uh, you know, he, he's not really a short, compact swing. He just tries to hit a home run <laughs> pretty much every time he swings a bat. Yeah. Um, and it's you know, Guriel too. It's uh, you know, he he just has great hand-eye coordination, really good bat speed. He's got power, uh, a good hitting approach, but you know, he's, he's angling the bat towards center field. It creates a lot of length in the swing, which, okay, you, you know, if, if you're a, a U.S. scout and, and you're trying to evaluate him from the perspective of, all right, well, if he ever comes out and we have to project this guy out in the major leagues, 
how does is that going to translate? Uh, you know, for him, it's not really a, a concern because you know if you, if you have a longer swing, uh, you know maybe the bat speed is still there and and the hand eye coordination is so good that it, it still works. Uh, but especially if you're facing guys in Cuba where you know the best guy is really just kind of tickling the low 90s at best. Um, most of the guys you're facing are throwing you know a bunch of mid 80s fastballs, maybe the high 80s. Uh, it doesn't really matter, so you can get away with a lot of bad habits there. You know, even a Brave who is, you know, he's a great hitter, but, uh, you know, his hands work really well, but he, he's got kind of a weird toe tap, and he sort of cuts himself off, uh, leaves himself vulnerable to, to inside fastballs and, and had some issues with breaking balls too. Uh, but, you know, the hitting acumen that he has and, and the power that he has uh, are just tremendous, and, and he can get away with it. In Cuba, whereas you know, if that if he's going to go face major league pitching uh, for 162 games, uh, those those things might not work, or it might just not might just be that he hasn't had the chance to, uh, he hasn't been forced to make those adjustments yet. So you don't know if he's going to make those adjustments. But that's that's one of the challenges for for scouts. JJ, what was your take uh, kind of on the? Uh, you, you didn't have a chance to have that discussion, but it, I thought Ben made a great point yesterday because. In Japan, you see some of these different hitting styles because there's not a parade of velocity. So you see some of these leg kicks, some of the pronounced stances, and you see a little bit of that out of Japan, out of Cuba as well. And I, I think that you make a great point that the two have to be related because uh, you can get away with an exaggerated stance like that when you're not facing uh, the kind of velocity you face in the American professional leagues. I will actually argue one point. I, I somewhat agree with that. I think with some of the stances you see in Japan, I would disagree. Like when you talk about a hitch or you talk about a long swing, I think that is something that you get into bad habits because of uh, the lack of premium velocity. I think in Japan, I would actually argue that a lot of that is the different stances and all you see, because a lot of it's in setup. It's not in the swing. It's in the setup. And that, I think, you could argue in many ways is because the – Personal training at age eight and the showcase environment that we have here in the U.S. now has not translated over to Japan. You used to see a lot more of that in the U.S., but really what's happened now stance-wise is, is we've become a lot more cookie-cutter because you know, it's something where most players have gotten instruction for many, many years, so they didn't develop their own style. They basically were taught, here's, how you, you know, here's your stance. And I do think with the Japan players, some of them, you know, they're not. It's a contact-oriented approach because they don't have a whole lot of power, and the kind of strange stance, you know, is kind of more what's comfortable for them. But I, I mean, I think there are things that, that some of the guys do that, you know, would be a problem against premium velocity. But I think some of it's just there's a little bit more individuality to your setup in Japan than there is here in the U.S. That's interesting as well. I mean, I, I do think there's a some cookie cutterness. Uh, we uh, we were talking in the office the other day, Ben. I don't think you were here, but uh, it was after you left, but. Uh, Batting stance guy, fewer guys, fewer unique guys for batting stance guy to do, but I think he would have a field day in Japan. So. Yeah, I mean, if you saw, I mean, Sakamoto is probably one of the the best Japanese players. He's only 24 years old, but he, he's got the the swing in terms of length. I mean, he's a pretty compact swing, and he's got some power, uh, especially for for an infielder. But it's that leg kick, I mean, he's practically bringing – he brings his leg, like, out, and then he, like, rotates it counterclockwise. I think at one point his foot is, like, over the plate, 
I mean, there's there's something to be said for you know doing what's comfortable for you and, yeah, and finding your own hitting approach. But I I can't imagine that's that feels natural for him or, or why somebody would teach him to do that because by the time you know I'm, and that that's the thing is I'm sure it works in Japan where you're not seeing the same uh, caliber of stuff that you're going to see in the major leagues if you, if you're facing you know Clayton Kershaw or even just you know some middle reliever in the U.S. who pretty much all throw in the mid-90s now, uh, if you have to gear up for that and be prepared for at least one good off-speed pitch, you're going to have all sorts of timing issues trying to catch up to that and being able to to stay balanced and stay back on the off-speed stuff. I just think it's fascinating stuff. I, obviously, uh, you know, we did a top 20 prospect after the last WBC. Ben and JJ going to kind of coordinating that already in a – Top 20 prospects who uh, we can go 10, we can go 20, we can probably go 30. If we went 30, I'd say 28 of them would be Cubans, maybe. Well, not 28, but <laughs> be a lot of Cubans. Um, ben, you talked about the, uh, the the batting practice uh, of the Cuban players. Um, again, I think that's part of the intimidation factor, and it seemed like it worked against Japan in the game that you saw them play in Fukuoka. What do you think changed for Team Japan? between that lackluster performance they put together in Fukuoka where they edged Brazil and China and then kind of got handled by uh, Cuba, and then went in the second round where they were able to beat Taiwan in a tight game and then just annihilate uh, the Netherlands twice, really, uh, 26 runs off the Dutch pitchers. Uh, what, what changed for, uh, for Team Japan? Was it as simple as getting Shunosuke Abe healthier and uh, – up in more situations where he could do some damage because he seems like he's the by far their most physical power hitter. Yeah, Abe is a, a big time hitter for them. He, he's going to be their most dangerous offensive weapon uh, in San Francisco. You know, I, they they kind of were pretty. They were kind of lackluster in, in Fukuoka. I didn't think they were all that great in Tokyo. And you know, in the first the first game they played against Taiwan, you know, they didn't light it up. You know, I think they ran into you know Rob Cordemans and and the Netherlands was leaning on him, but he just he just didn't have it yeah. <laughs> that day. And and then the bullpen they just, they just weren't really facing quality arms uh, the rest of that first game against uh, the Netherlands. They you know they they did turn it on in the second game. Uh, I'll give them I'll give them that against the Netherlands. But the offense you know they don't have the same offensive firepower that they did in 2006 or in 2009. Um, you know, Abe is a dangerous hitter. Uh, Sakamoto, it's going to be interesting to see how he fares against uh, better pitching. They've they've got some you know solid hitters in the lineup, but you know they certainly don't have the thumpers that uh, that Cuba has. Um, but uh, but yeah, Abe Abe is definitely going to be the guy to watch in San Francisco. You know, older guy, so from a prospect standpoint, um, maybe not the guy that that scouts are are going to be. Uh, looking at it, although I do think he could play in the major leagues, but um, but in, in terms of Japan uh, having a chance to win the World Baseball Class, I, I think he's going to be a, a big figure for them going forward. JJ, uh, kind of what, what's your takeaway between Japan and Netherlands uh, from that from Pool One? I mean, uh, which team uh, is Japan? Uh, two-time champions and they're back in the Final Four. I mean. Even without their major leaguers, do you think Japan is the favorite? I mean, are they the in in the Ric Flair parlance? I mean, to be the man, you got to beat the man. Is, is Japan still the man? Japan's still the man. I don't think they can be the favorite because I do think that we've seen with the U.S. even with their kind of little bit of struggles that 
that they, especially when we saw what, what Gio Gonzalez did, I, I think you probably point to the U.S. as the favorite. The thing that was encouraging to me for uh, for Japan was that Maeda came back and, and threw much better. And that gives them, if they've got Tanaka and Maeda, that's a, that's a much better situation, both of them throwing well. That's a much better situation than they had when they were in Fukuoka, when, uh, when Ben saw them. I did want to also ask Ben one thing, which is, Ben, were you surprised that it appears that the Cuban team left, went to Japan, came back, and it seems like everyone on the Cuban team is still on the Cuban team? Yeah, I guess, you know, there haven't been defections really at the, the World Baseball Classics. So I guess I'm not too surprised about that. And there's some obviously some rumors about some guys might leave. But, yeah, any time these guys leave Cuba, uh, you never know. There's a, a chance some of them might uh, run away. But uh, it, it seems like more and more for, you know, for whatever reason, these guys are it, – it's, it's easier, I would think, to, to walk away at one of these international tournaments. I guess it depends on what country you're in in terms of whether it's, you know, how advantageous it is. Uh, to leave, but for whatever reason, these guys seem to be trusting their lives to, you know, these guys who are smuggling them out of Cuba, and it's not very safe, obviously. But uh, these guys are are taking those risks. A lot of them are are getting caught and getting punished for it, and even the ones who are are making it over successfully are, are running into a lot of danger. So it's uh, it's just a dicey situation. I think dicey is the. A- I mean, that's, yeah. that's, that's, the, that's, that's the professional way to put it. It's uh, the Baseball America podcast with John, Ben, and J.J. And J.J., uh, let's transition a little bit to the other side. We still have four teams alive in Pool 2 as we record this. Italy and Puerto Rico getting ready to play a, an elimination game. Uh, correct me if I – disagree with me, if you, if you will, J.J., but I think that the, this Pool 2 is a much, much bigger separation than Pool 1 was. I think the U.S. and Dominican – with the exception of Ricardo Nanita, these are two lineups full of big leaguers, and Italy and Puerto Rico are some big leaguers, some minor leaguers, some foreign league players. I would say like you know Japan or uh, Korean leaguers or even Italian leaguers. But the, there's a pretty big oh, in, gap. Oh, in Italy's case, in no no leaguers last year. Yeah, one Anthony case. Granato, yeah. short stuff. Yeah, but you know, I, he played, I would, he played I would the European that, Cup. But. but I would say that Italy and and the Puerto Rican, the Puerto Rican and Italian teams are, I think, there's a big gap between their talent and the U.S. and Dominican uh, teams. That's that's how I feel about it. Uh, what would your take? Let's talk a little bit about Italy, actually, because I'm going to give you a chance to wax eloquent about Chris Colabello, your 2011 uh, Independent Player of the Year, um, who's kind of the feel-good story about this. But how big of a shock was it to you to see to be out in Phoenix and to see Italy win its first two games in advance? And do you think that using all these passport guys like Colabello and like Anthony Rizzo and like Nick Punto, does that help? Is that good for the WBC in the long run or a hindrance? Because it seems like it does turn some fans off. Yeah, but the fans, I think it turns off are the same fans who just want to complain about the WBC and they're looking for something to complain about. I agree with you. I think in that case, I mean, this Italy team is – you know, there are passport players. Some of them are, are less are more passporty than others. Like in the in the case of like Colabello, you know, his mom's Italian. He you know, and he's lived in Italy at times, and he speaks Italian. You know, that to me, 
you know, that, that doesn't feel to me like a guy who goes, hey, can you, you know, do you want to wear Team Italy uniform? I mean, this is a guy who ever, before he ever signed a, a pro contract with the Twins, you know, affiliated contract, he was talking about how he's going to go play in the Italian League at some point. You know, he's looking forward to that at some point at the very tail end of his career. And there's a lot of pitchers on this team. I mean, they did really, I mean, if you say, okay, they did win in large part um, because of the middle of their lineup, which was one flat out, Alex Liddy is completely Italian, first Italian big leaguer. Anthony Rizzo is not. He's more of a passport player. That's a key thing for them to get there. But at the same time, a lot of their success, surprisingly, was because of pitchers from the Italian league. And, you know, to me, yes, you are putting some passport guys around them so that, you know, that's representative team. But I thought that that, I, I know it's good for baseball in Italy. Because talking to you know people involved with baseball in Italy, they were saying how that this would be very important for baseball in Italy. It would get you know some added attention for what really has been, I mean, because of the economy in Italy in general, it's been a pretty tough time for the Italian Baseball League, and this is going to be a boost for it. And that's exactly what the World Baseball Classic is supposed to be. So it's good to see that happen to me. And, and see to me, the fact that you have the Netherlands in the semifinals and you have Italy playing in the second round is huge for baseball in Europe. And it's an inspiration for Germany and some of the other countries who, you know, who are kind of growing baseball there to say, you know, hey, here, look, here, there's a goal to shoot for. Also, uh, JJ, just talk, just talk, you got to talk a little bit about Colabello. I mean, oh. I mean, this, how, I mean, this guy's got two home runs in four games. He's got the, the air kiss scene around the world with him and the, Anthony Rizzo, which was just hilarious, my favorite celebration of the WBC. Uh, talk a little bit about about him and uh, his career and kind of what this, you know, he stamped himself. I mean, he went oppo, three-run homer off Edison Volquez about ten rows back at Marlins Park. That's a big league thing to do for Chris Colabello. I mean, this this guy's story is pretty unique. Yeah, he, I, I mean, I, I am unashamedly a Chris Colabello fan. I mean, where do you start? He seven-year independent league career hitting over 300 each and every one of those seven years never signed a pro contract and stuck with it as I had multiple players themselves tell me it's like and scouts say seven years how did he stick with it seven years and you know they just tip their cap like I mean it's it's amazing that you would be willing to do that and not give up on your dream so signs with the twins you had a really good year last year in double a and then you know, goes out and and really has the World Baseball Classic to dream of. I mean, to go from one year ago not knowing if you're ever going to get a chance to play affiliated ball to playing in big league stadiums against big league pitchers and not just holding your own but, but succeeding, you know, but really being a key part of, of one of the more improbable runs in World Baseball Classic history, it's hard to imagine kind of a better story than that. And, and the thing about it is is that you also can't help but think that this is this is going to be key for him going forward too, because he's going to head to Triple A. I mean, that's where he's going to go. He's going to be head to Triple A for the uh, you know for the Twins this year. And if there is ever a point this year, you know, where they're like, hey, we need to bring a guy up, this is a case where I do think that the World Baseball Classic performance has helped him, because I think it is something that the Twins see, and it's like, okay, you file that away. I know if a lot of guys they say you know didn't want to leave to go to the WBC because they were fighting for job big league jobs and that was going to hurt them. I understand that. This is a guy who wasn't fighting for a big league job, but 
what he's done in a week of the World Baseball Classic is way more than he could have done in a week in Twins camp to me. I would love to think what y'all hear what y'all think about that, but to me that's that's pretty clear. Yeah, I'm, I'm but it's not like you know, it's not like he just you know scraped by in Double A last year either. You know, I know he was 28. Obviously, <laughs> like you said, it took him seven years just to to get to that point. But you know, he he put up good numbers in the Eastern League last year. And not only, and not only that, Ben, but uh, as I told JJ. When I was doing uh, when I was doing twins calls for the top thirty, and you know you're going over these things with, like with their farm director and with their field coordinator and these guys in the system about best defensive infielder, Joe Leppel just said uh, I, I, well, he said first he said uh, what's the shortstop the veteran guy Pedro Florimon, I told him well he doesn't qualify. His next name out of his uh, out of his mouth was Chris Colabella. He said this guy's really good around first base. I know you don't normally say a first baseman for best defensive infielder. But I might say Chris Colabello. Now, I wound up going in another direction. I forget who I picked because I didn't want to pick a first baseman. <laughs> but it just tells you a little bit of the show of respect he has earned in that organization. And uh, I think he's an option for them. And I think with Justin Morneau's contract, with their rebuilding, if Morneau has a good, uh, gets off to a good start this year, and we've talked about in other podcasts a lack of offense at first base in the major leagues right now, uh, the, the possibility of playing Joe Maurer more at first base on the line. I think it's possible Colabello is a transition guy for the Twins, and especially now that you see Trevor Plouffe having this calf strain in spring training. Frankly, Trevor Plouffe, outside of Josh Willingham, is their top right-handed power guy. And obviously, Willingham's one. Plouffe is their next right-handed power guy. I think when you're a rebuilding team at the big league level, uh, they could do a lot worse than play Chris Colabello. Um, some. So I think he's shown to me – that he deserves a big league shot, and I think he showed some of that last year. But like you said, Ben, you could just kind of chalk it up to 28-year-old double A. Uh, he's perfect for what the WBC is about. It gives him a chance um, to, to to play in a pressure situation, and I think we'll see it again uh, with some of the younger pitchers. Uh, we you saw it, JJ with Jamison Tyone in Phoenix. Oh, I, mean, I think we all I, knew Jamison Tyone's a stud, but to really measure that. How, how much of a stud could he be? Well, you saw it. I mean, it's spring training, but four innings against a big league team, a big league lineup like that. He competed, and he had front-line stuff. And the thing about it is, is that's something that for his development is going to be huge because now he knows I can. it's one thing to face guys. In, yeah, you can face big league in spring training, but you also know in the back of your head even as a pitcher, okay, I faced them, but you know, they weren't. I mean, it's spring training. This is different. He faced big league hitters, a really not just a big league lineup, a big league lineup that would rank as one of the best, if not the best, big league lineup in baseball. Right. In a game that really mattered, and he, you know, and and he succeeded. He thrived. You know, had a couple. Uh, I think Joe Torre helped him yeah. with a with the, with a puzzling. I, I do think. I mean, we talked about the epidemic with Bunning. To give an out to a young pitcher who, I really thought like that that with Tyone, really what the risk you had was. Is that if an inning went started going poorly, it could fall apart pretty quickly. Well, it didn't, and I do think part of that is is you give him an out when he doesn't, you know, they don't have to work for. You just made his job a lot easier. But no, you saw the stuff. I mean, he didn't really. There was really a fastball curveball approach, but both both of them looked really good. And the thing that did also stand out for a young pitcher is, is that he felt comfortable throwing his curveball behind in the count because he felt comfortable he could locate it, which was was pretty impressive. I thought he was very impressive. Guys, uh, we should wrap up soon, but uh, impressions of Team USA, Ben. I mean, like, which is the worst managerial move 
Victor Mesa, Bunning, Uleski, Guriel, Jose Dariel, Abreu, and Alfredo Despagne? Or is that trumped by Joe Torre batting Giancarlo Stanton eighth? Uh, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine why you would want Stanton getting fewer bats than, you know, Jimmy Rollins and, and Brandon Phillips, but. Uh, and Eric Hosmer. Yeah, or Eric Hosmer. I guess maybe you want to break up the lefties and the righties or something like that, but. Um, I, I would I don't get too bogged down in, in right. batting order. What, what Cuba was doing was just just silly. I mean, they were they're having their catcher bunt with two strikes. He can't do it. They have him do it again. Uh, try to bunt again. I think he popped out. Um, it's just it just I mean I guess it got him on television a lot. Got him talked about a lot. It's good for him. Uh, but you know I think it cost him the game and it cost him a trip to San Francisco. I agree. I don't think I don't I, I don't think it's uh, worse than, than Joe Torre. At the same time, I am stunned by Joe Torre batting Giancarlo Stanton eight. And at the same time, it's almost like he's doing it, JJ, to prove how good this team is because you have Stanton and Zobras hitting eighth and ninth. And it has worked. Hosmer actually, to his credit, has had a pretty decent WBC. And I thought he had a nice did a nice job last night with that. You know, you know, you know when I showed Alex this morning that we were watching WBC highlights and showed my son. Hey, Eric Hosmer stole a base off Yadier Molina. He instantly just said, but Molina's a minus four. He just went to strat talk <laughs> immediately. Um, so he thought, what's Hosmer? Hosmer can't be more than a C. But, you know, uh, but Hosmer with some savvy and scored from second after he stole the base. I mean, he had the big three-run hit against the uh, break open that, uh, the game with Canada. But uh, it, it still feels like uh, the U.S. lineup – is the strongest lineup in this event. And if they're going to start getting decent starting pitching like they got out of Gio Gonzalez, I feel like they are they, – they, to me, they survived the first round, and after last night they've kind of established themselves as the favorite as long as Dickey is better than he was in the first round. I do think the, the thing to me that is the concern if you're the, for the U.S. team is this. Okay, so how is your pitching going to set up for the cuz cuz we go from this double elimination to a one and done and i, I feel very comfortable if Gio Gonzalez is on the mound if you're the US i feel pretty comfortable if Riley Dickey's on the mound if you're the US the other two guys i'm not so comfortable and so we're going to get Dickey today so that means we'll get Vogelsong in the if they win in the kind of seeding game but does that set up i mean does that mean that you're going to see Derek Holland, who pitched okay, but you know you got Derek Holland in the uh, in the uh, uh, you know the, the the semifinal game. That's the game to me. If they can get to the finals, Gio Gonzalez in the finals, I, I feel very good about that. I'm not so I don't feel as comfortable that the U.S. is going to roll with with Holland on the mound in, in maybe the semifinals. No, you're right. If if it's Derek Holland versus either Kenta Maeda or Masahiro Tanaka, I, I might rather have. Uh, Maeda or Tanaka than Holland. I'm not the biggest Holland fan in the world. He's a solid uh, starting pitcher, but yeah, just in terms of the uh, the presentability, I, I might take Maeda or Tanaka over over Holland. I'm with you, Ben. I think that's a great way to put it. I think you both are on point because to me, uh, it really so much of it for the U.S. You don't want to look too far ahead. Uh, you've got to win this game on the 14th against the Dominican. That's that's a must win for me because, like you said, then that can allow you to. To crew, you're already set. You've got uh, Vogelsong for the seeding game. I think you'd rather be the champion of Pool 2. You'd rather advance the easy way. Absolutely. 
beat a champion, and then you play the Netherlands, and the Netherlands is good, great infield defense, and 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 if especially if they can get healthy, you know, we'll see if uh, Roger Verbenardina can return, if Vladimir Valentin can return. I think the caster is probably not going to return. Uh, do you guys think Jurex and Profar, if he's added, the Dallas Morning News, uh, Evan Grant reported, possibility of Profar being added. I keep checking his Twitter for news of that. I haven't found it yet. Uh, how big of a difference could Profar make for the Netherlands? Maybe, does getting Jurex and Profar make them – I think it makes them a better team. Does it make them more of a contender to win the championship, or do you feel like getting to the semifinals is kind of as far as they can go? Ben, why don't you answer that first? I, th- I think it would be a huge addition for them, especially given the injuries they have. Um, you know, I'm not sure where they would put him – uh, best guess I have is DH. Yeah, I think I think right. they just slide him in at DH to be honest with you, Ben. Because the only other because the, their infield defense has been a strength. I don't know that you'd want to mess up the kind of the chemistry that Scope and Simmons have shown so far. Because those guys are ridiculous as a double play combination. Yeah, Scope Scope's Scope botched a couple balls. I mean, just the you're right. Maybe you might want to keep the chemistry together with the with Simmons and Scope that they have on the the double play combination. I think as a defender, I would put. Just in terms of the raw talent, I'd probably put Profar at second no uh, and maybe Scope to the outfield um, but or, or maybe move Scope to third base, something where he where he's played more often than Xander Bogarts. You could put Bogarts at DH. Uh, but, yeah, bottom line is if you put Profar uh, in that lineup, I think that makes him a, a much more dangerous team, especially if they're you know going to be without – you know we'll see what the status of, of balancing is uh, and some of the – up, but but yeah, you put Profar on that lineup. That's a huge addition. And JJ, I mean, to me, it would be. I, I think Ben actually. I think you're probably right because Bogarts is playing first base, uh, third base, really for the first time in an extended period in games that matter. And so if you move Scope to third, Profar to second, and if you could somehow put Bogarts in the outfield, uh, I doubt the Red Sox would, would allow that. But anything that you could do to keep from playing in a winner-take-all kind of game with Randolph Odebert in, the, in left field. <laughs> Even though he did steal nine, uh, three bases the other day in the game, but he went one for four. And you're basically giving away – I think he had three strikeouts. Um, but that, that to me, J.J., this all, makes it all the more impressive that the Dutch have gotten there. And uh, probably the biggest out of the entire WBC for me was uh, Luke Van Mill striking out Frederick Cepeda. I mean, Frederick Cepeda – in the Cuban version of the word, is the most professional hitter on their team. He's the one. He's the guy who shortens up. He's the guy who's not all or nothing swing. He has an incredible, uh, or he has a all or nothing swing less often than his compatriots. <laughs> and he has an incredible World Baseball Classic international track record. And Van Mill struck him out with the go ahead run at third base and one out. I mean that was that was huge. But uh, but the, the to me the Dutch team, I think getting to the semifinal. I don't. I don't. I guess I'm saying I don't think they could win it. Do you think they could beat? Just for example, either the Dominican or the U.S. and then Japan no. and back-to-back games. No, no, and I, I don't think they have much chance at all. To be honest with you, I think it's a great accomplishment they made the semifinals. I mean, tip of the cap. Uh, I think you're. I think at this point you are looking at three teams that can win it. And I know we're ruling out Italy and Puerto Rico, you know, when they haven't even been eliminated. But I, I do think you're looking at the Dominican, the U.S., or Japan. Any one of those three could win it. Uh, I think that's really kind of the the, the three to watch. Before we wrap up, I did also want to ask y'all because I thought I found it was kind of interesting. You know, here in Phoenix, Bud Selig kind of held an impromptu press conference, and in, in it he mentioned that with the WBC, he kept repeating. He must have said at least six times 
the goal is to grow the game internationally. He, I mean, he re- kept repeating that and made the point like, look, the rate, the TV ratings actually for the, you know, for the WBC have been very good for MLB Network. It's been some of the best ratings MLB Network's ever had. But his point being, if this is a success in the U.S. or not, is not really the, the main point. The main point is, is, is the success internationally. Is it grow baseball internationally? Does it allow us to distribute money internationally to help grow the game, all that? But then he said, really, the long-term goal is, is he wants to see a true World Series. And I just kind of wanted to hear what you guys thought about that, the idea of – and we asked him to clarify, and it, really what it seemed like was, at least at the start, would be, okay, you take your U.S. champion, you take your – Japanese champion, not an all-star team, but you take actually your team and you play a series between them. It's going to be a ways away, he said. I mean, we're talking after, it's not going to be while he's commissioner, he said, and we all know at this point that Bud's going to be commissioner probably till 2050, so, uh, yeah. so you know, it's going to be a while, but, uh, but, but I, I wondered what you guys thought about the idea of a true World Series. Ben, why don't you I mean, yeah, so what, what it will be like I mean, it's not really going to be a world, world, like a global World Series. I mean, you're going to have, what, MLB versus the champion of of Nippon Professional Baseball. You're not going to get the Dominican League and the Venezuelan League. I mean, that that would be kind of silly, right? (laughs) Yeah, I I don't think you even call it a World Series. If you want to call it, though, like, you know, the – I mean, I, I think the idea of the matchup is is pretty interesting. But, yeah, the the problem is is as we've seen with the World Baseball Classic, there is no real chance because of logistics that you can ever put together what you would call close to a true world championship because, for one, the seasons are just do not match up. I mean, the, that's like this would be even like logistically difficult about having the U.S. champ versus the Japan champ in that the Japan series, they run their season runs longer than the U.S. So you would have to have the U.S. one, either they would have to move their season end up or the U.S. one would have to uh, kind of stay fresh for a couple of weeks after their World Series is over, which seems unlikely. And then you threw in, like, yeah, if you said, okay, but we're also going to have the best Dominican team. Well, if you do that, that team could have a guy from the, you know, from the U.S. world champ, so that doesn't work in some ways. There's, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of hurdles involved, but I, I, the idea of, an, of a U.S.-Japan champ series that mattered does intrigue me, but yeah, I don't think it'd be a true World Series. Yeah, I, I don't. I just can't see the logistics happening. There's too many games. The U.S. play teams play too many games. Uh, you know, Japan's schedule actually seems like it makes a little bit more sense. 140 games, and they have more days off, but it lasts. The season lasts longer there, like you said. Like it, it goes later into the se- into the year, um, probably because they wear everybody out in spring training. <laughs> but um. Would you bring in like the champions from Serie Nacional and the KBO and that's, I mean that's what I'm saying. I don't think that's work. I just I agree with you, Ben. I just don't think it's workable. But I do think I, I think we probably all agree that this tournament, while imperfect, has a lot of good parts to it, and that there's room for refinement with the WBC. But I, I think it's got a, a lot of things going for it that are positive, and I I, I think that there's. It, it's. I, I feel like it has some positive momentum, even though I think this year the talent on the teams was a little down compared to past years. Uh, maybe I'm maybe I'm a little off there, but you know, no Felix Hernandez makes me just think Venezuela wasn't as good. They didn't even advance out of the first round. I mean, the Dominican doesn't really have a, an ace pitcher like they've had in, in past tournaments. Um, but it still feels like it's been a it's been a very entertaining tournament. You had the brawl we didn't even talk about, uh, which was. 
kind of showed the, some of the ferocity and the passion of these uh, of this game. We had the all-time greatest WBC quote coming from Larry Walker that he saw Satan in Alfredo Aceves' eyes. I mean, I feel like it's been a fun tournament, and I feel like there's better things to come for the WBC uh, going forward. I, I think I know. I think it's definitely the other thing I think has happened is is that what we've seen this year is proof that you know this is a more competitive tournament than maybe a lot of people thought. I think that's what's important about the Netherlands doing what they've done and Italy doing what it's done and all, is that this isn't something where when they roll this around again in 2017, that there can be any argument made, oh, well, you know, most of these teams are just pushovers, and really it's only a two- or three-team tournament. We've seen it's not a two- or three-team tournament. I mean, South Korea who has been as dominant in this thing as anyone besides Japan, can't make it out of the first round. Venezuela doesn't make it out of the first round. Italy makes it to the second round. There's just a lot of, uh, of signs of the growing competitive, you know, the, the, the competition around the world is getting better. And the other thing is, is that, you know, I, I do think that there's, I, I think the brawl in hindsight is, is going to be one of the important things that ever happened in WBC history because it gave people, it gave people more attention for the, you know, there, I saw. You know, there, I still see things. You know, places where it's being talked about now. There are not a whole lot of WBC occurrences that you have a whole lot of people talking about days after it happened, and and that does stand out as, as something where I, I do think there is some positive momentum going on here. I think so too. Fun tournament, guys. Uh, great stuff, and we have more to come. Obviously, uh, Walter Villa down in Miami covering the pool two. Uh, I'll be wrapping up in San Francisco. Looking forward to that. And uh, guys, a great coverage from you guys from Phoenix and from uh, Fukuoka. So uh, look forward to more. Look forward to previews for uh, for the finals and for the prospect uh, wrap-up when it's all done. So uh, thanks for making the time, guys. Hey, thank you. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks for all the WBC uh, uh, fandom we've seen out there. Absolutely. And, Ben, uh, we're going to have to talk again soon about uh, – the international stuff, and I wanted to get your take on uh, on Ian Gordon's uh, article on Mother Jones for a future podcast, so we'll, we'll get that done too. Sure. So for Ben and for JJ, I'm John Manuel. We'll see you next time on the next Baseball America podcast. So long, everybody. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.